We're in a series called A People. And today I want to talk about being a people committed to sharing the good news of Jesus with others. And we all love to share good news, right? A new job, an engagement, the birth of a child. We love to post that stuff on Instagram. Not only that, we love to tell each other about, you know, good products or movies or restaurants and experiences. In fact, sharing good news with others almost completes the enjoyment of that thing, right? Have you ever had something happen to you that was wonderful and there was no one to tell or people weren't responding to your text messages? It's the worst. It's like when you have good news, you want to share it. It's really natural. We love to share good news. It's the most natural thing in the world. We love to share what excites us. And today we're talking about sharing the good news about Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. And here's the tension that immediately arises. Sharing good news is natural, but sharing the good news about Jesus can feel unnatural. In a a culture full of evangelists, in the general sense of the word, we can be so timid and shy about sharing the good news of Jesus. And there's many reasons for that, right? Like personality, timidity, insecurity, tiredness, doubts. We don't want to make things awkward. We don't know how people will respond. I mean, there's so many reasons why that's the case. But sharing good news feels natural. Sharing the good news about Jesus can feel unnatural. And I want to suggest that one of the primary causes is that our culture has actually evangelized us. The message culture preaches often sounds like this. Don't share your faith, right? Keep your religion private, right? Your your religious beliefs, they may be subjectively meaningful, but they're not objectively true, so keep them to yourself. Or maybe you've heard of this heavily critiqued idea called the white man's burden. It's a reference to this felt historical responsibility to impose European culture on others. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it like this, a duty formally asserted by white people to manage the affairs of non-white people whom they believe to be less developed. It's explicitly racist and awful. And historically, it involved sharing the gospel with people as well. Which means sharing the good news of Jesus got wrapped up in greed and exploitation and colonization and oppression and racism. It's a tragic story. The good news of Jesus is at its heart a liberating message of forgiveness and new life and hope for the oppressed, yet it's often been proclaimed by the oppressor. As a result, there's many people in Vancouver who feel that Christian evangelism is a form of cultural aggression that marginalizes other minority narratives and worldviews. Many would even label evangelism as an act of power or aggression or even violence towards other groups or viewpoints. There are kind, smart people who will argue with you about this and attempt to convince you that this viewpoint is true and should be embraced. In other words, they will evangelize you into believing evangelism is wrong. And some of us have been converted. And we've been converted without noticing this strange inconsistency. People will say, hey, you shouldn't impose your beliefs on others. But that's a belief they're trying to impose on you. 
People will say you shouldn't tell others your religious viewpoint is true. Well, that's a religious viewpoint. They're trying to convince you is true. As soon as we say to someone, you shouldn't evangelize people based on your religious viewpoint, you are at that very moment evangelizing them based on your religious viewpoint. You're sharing with them your good news of religious pluralism. It's like someone telling you you shouldn't smack people while smacking you in the face. Like we try to convert people to the idea that we should never try to convert people, which is okay, but let's be honest about what we're doing and stop claiming some kind of moral enlightened high ground like Christians are so bad for evangelizing. Really, who's not doing it? Like we're all evangelists in one sense or another. Our world is filled with pulpits and preachers, universities, films, social media platforms. I see pulpits everywhere. That's even true when it comes to religion. The best-selling evangelistic books in the last 20 years were not written by Christians. They were written by atheists, people who don't believe in God. Think of Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. He says right at the beginning, if this book works the way I intend it to, you will pick it up a believer and put it down an unbeliever. In other words, he says, my goal is to convert you. My view of reality is true and yours is false. More than three million copies were sold. According to Dawkins in a 2016 interview, an unauthorized Arabic version has been downloaded three million times in Saudi Arabia. The most lucrative evangelistic track in the last 20 years was published by an atheist. And I bought it, and I read it, and I enjoyed it. A little angsty, sometimes a bit rude, but I appreciate he cared enough to try to convert me. The point is, what we're talking about today is something many people naturally do, not just Christians. We all have good news to share. And for the rest of our time together, I want to talk about why sharing the good news of Jesus is a beautiful, liberating, loving thing to do. And I want to look at a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. This is a first century church in a key Roman city filled with young and new Christians, kind of like our church. And it was a city filled with different religions and perspectives and opinions about God and life, kind of like our city. And in chapter 5 of his second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul provides a number of reasons why Christians should tell others about Jesus. There are four of them. This is the roadmap for the message. Here are the four points if you're a note taker. What you just heard was the preamble and introduction. This is the body. Four points. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ makes us new. God makes his appeal through us. And Jesus is the best news we've ever heard. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ makes us new. God makes his appeal through us. And Jesus is the best news we've ever heard. So number one, the love of Christ compels us. Look back at the text. Paul writes, For the love of Christ compels us because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So the Apostle Paul here, he's talking about his ministry and the ministry of his co-workers. But there's a principle that applies to us. He says, the love of Christ compels us. 
And the word compel has a positive meaning in that compel means pressure applied to cause action. It's a motivational word in the context based on a deep conviction about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But it also conveys this idea of constraint. Like in light of who Jesus is, in light of what Jesus has done, I can't live solely for myself anymore. You see that in the text? It's like Jesus died for me and I died to a selfish lifestyle as a result. Because of what Christ has done for me, my actions are constrained. I can no longer live for myself. And so our love for Jesus and his love for us, expressed most clearly in him dying for all, compels us to serve and love others and constrains us from living for ourselves. Elsewhere in his letters, the Apostle Paul makes it really personal. He writes in Galatians 2.20, The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And so our motivation for sharing about Jesus' love, it's not guilt. It's not fear. It's not about shame. It's not a religious scorecard. It's not a means by which we feel better about ourselves or more holy than others. It's love. And love is patient. And love is kind. It's not rude. It's not rude. It's not proud. Love is not exploitative. Love is not coercive. Love is not cynical. Love is curious. Love wonders, why do you think the way you think? Why do you have the objections you do? Oh, that's so, that's so interesting. I never thought about that. Love leads to humble servants who listen and live for the good of others and lift people up instead of pushing people down. The love of Christ compels us. I love Jesus, and I love people, and I want the people I love to meet the Jesus I love. The love of Christ compels us. Number two, the love of Christ makes us new. Paul continues, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. If anyone comes to faith in Christ, if anyone trusts in Jesus, he or she is a new creation. And if you're new to scripture, the Bible has three main movements or plot points that help orientate us in the story of God. It's a simplified framework. It leaves a lot out, but it gives us an anchor in the story of God. And these three movements, you could call them creation, decreation, and recreation. So in the beginning, God creates all things good. And one of the good things God creates is humans in his image and likeness who have free will. Freedom that makes possible love and relationship and virtue and responsibility and all the things that make human life uniquely human and worth living. Humans use that freedom to rebel against God. Genesis 3. The end result is decreation, sin, chaos, destruction, profound alienation. But the story doesn't end there. Sin doesn't have the first word or the last word, only the middle word in the story. God doesn't give up on humanity or creation. God begins a plan of recreation through his people, leading ultimately to the person of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit who make us new. And we need new creation because the first creation has been ruined and distorted by sin. 
And the good news is that God is making us new in Jesus, and God is making all things new through Jesus. The good news is that God doesn't just have a plan to restore us. God has a plan to restore all of creation. That's what God is up to in the world, says Scripture, not abandoning it but restoring it, not scrapping it, but saving it. Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That through faith in Christ, we're united to Christ. We're in Christ, the old has gone, the new has come. And if you read scholars on this passage, many will point out that the Greek would imply the old is gone, the new is coming. Almost this process of recreation and renewal. And so I'll make it personal. Uh, I grew up in church, but I was not a follower of Jesus. Uh, You could say the love of Chris compelled me in everything I did. See what I, you saw. (laughs) You saw what I did there. And I used to do all kinds of stuff, like I stole from my family, lied to friends, endangered myself, put others in dangerous situations. But in high school, or after high school, I became a follower of Jesus. And it radically changed my life. And when I would tell people in my early 20s that I used to snort cocaine and mistreat people and put myself in dangerous relationships and situations, they would look at me with disbelief. Like they didn't believe me. And I realized they didn't believe me because I was talking about my former life and I was a new creation in Christ. Now, if I told you about my people-pleasing tendencies, if I told you about my impatience with other drivers, if I told you about my wife and I bickering in the midst of renovations, or I'm sometimes frustrated with my kids, like you would say, that sounds like the current version of you. No skepticism at all. Sounds right up to date. Uh, And it is. That's the current version of me, and there's a longer list of issues. (laughs) But here's the the good news of this text. It's not the forever version of me. Like, it's not who I will always be. God made me new, and God is making me new. That means our former life is not our forever life. Our past mistakes don't determine our identity or future destiny. Not only that, our current life, our current struggles are not our forever life and our forever struggles. Our past life and our current life can be our former life in Christ because he makes people new. The love of Christ changes people. And one reason I tell you this is because it's so easy for me to get cynical about what the church has done in the name of evangelism. And then other times I just feel like timid and shy or I just feel exhausted. And then sometimes you have these moments where you're like, ah, I don't even, is this even true? I don't want to be telling others about it if I'm not even sure myself. So you have all these thoughts, all these doubts, all these hesitations, and they make sense. But then I, you know, I peel back the layers and I think about what Jesus does in the lives of people. Hurting hearts healed. Broken lives restored. Meaning for those without meaning. Hope for those without hope. Family for those without family. Love for those who have felt unlovable. And I think what Jesus has done and is doing in my life, and I think, ah, it's worth talking about. 
Nikki Gumbel's a pastor and leader in the UK, and he pioneered Alpha. And uh, as we heard a lot, Alpha creates space for people to ask questions and express doubts. Bring your whole self into the room. All your thoughts, all your skepticism, and wrestle with the claims of Christianity. And Nikki has done something like 90 plus alphas. And he recently retired from his role at the church. And in his last message to the congregation, he told them a story about a man named Kay with permission. And Kay was an atheist. And Kay's mother passed away and he was feeling very low. He said he wasn't happy in life and didn't want to be here any longer. And so he went to his mom's grave to say goodbye to her and to say, I'll see you soon. It's a very low place. And as he was walking away from the grave, he looked down and he saw a bank card in the dirt. And he picked it up and looked at the name. And it belonged to someone he hadn't seen in 25 years. A man named Nana, an old friend from his past. And Nana's brother had died and was buried near to Kay's mom. And so Kay connected with Nana on Facebook. And it turns out Nana was a Christian and he said to him, I'm coping with grief too. And I think what you need to do is alpha. So I'm, bo- I, you know, I'm booking you in and we'll do the first two weeks together. And Kay loved Alpha. And his life began to change. And on the weekend away, which is a part of every Alpha course, Kay was filled with the Holy Spirit and started to tell all his friends about Jesus. They started to notice the transformation in his life. He never attended church before Alpha. And now he wants to get baptized. And his life was saved in every way possible by an encounter with Jesus. And I've heard so many stories like that. The love of Christ changes people. Jesus makes people new. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. Number three, God makes his appeal through us. Look what Paul writes next. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. All this is from God. Right? Salvation is from the Lord. It's not from our answers, it's not from our winsomeness, it's not from our cleverness. Salvation is from the Lord. God planned our salvation, Jesus accomplished our salvation, the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to our lives. All this is from God, it's not from us. The only thing we contributed to our salvation was the sin that made it necessary. We contributed to the alienation that created the need for reconciliation. And God has reconciled himself to us through Jesus, not holding our sins against us. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. God makes his appeal through us. That people come to know about Jesus through other people. Sometimes God uses angels and dreams and other extraordinary ways of revealing himself. But God's primary means of introducing people to Jesus is through other imperfect people. Last week, uh, when Jason spoke about discipleship, he talked about this early morning prayer gathering uh, in Coquitlam, where he attended, you know, in high school with his friend Ben. And there was a picture of Jason and Ben. (laughs) Oh, it's up again. (laughs) Yes. 
I'm not going to lie, I asked for it. Again, I asked for that. I'm not surprised. Um, what Jason didn't mention is that I was also at those prayer meetings. Don't know why I didn't get the shout out. Uh, oh, we can take the picture off now. And, and this is a picture of me and Ben. No, I didn't ask for that. Okay, it's fine. Um, ben is also my friend, and uh, he teaches in our kids' ministry. And Ben was the co-host for the Alpha Youth film series that, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids around the world have watched lots of different languages. And a lot of people know who Ben is as a result. Uh, but not a lot of people know who Bob is. And Bob is Ben's dad. And Bob once told me the story, some of you have heard this, but Bob once told me the story or his story, of coming to faith. And Bob became a Christian in the 60s. And one morning he was hitchhiking in Horseshoe Bay with his friend. And two guys picked them up and started sharing about the God who made the mountains and the ocean and sent his son to die for their sins, shared the gospel with them. And when they got out of the car, Bob told me that his friend started laughing and said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But Bob told me he started, he was almost crying because he thought it was the most beautiful thing he had ever heard. And Bob became a Christian. And years and years later, here's his son, Ben, sharing Jesus with thousands and thousands of youth all over the world and in our church in the kids' ministry. And I like to think, at least in a small part, that the impact of the Alpha Youth Series is part of the spiritual legacy of that one conversation with Bob hitchhiking at Horseshoe Bay. That God made his appeal through those two men to Bob. Bob made the same appeal to his children, and Ben's made that appeal to hundreds of thousands of young people around the world and downstairs. And will those two men who shared the gospel with Bob ever know like the ripple effects of that one conversation this side of heaven? I don't think so. I don't know their names. But think about that. We put so much pressure on ourselves when it comes to this act of sharing our faith. Will I have the right answers? Will I close the deal? What if I can't respond to objections? Most of us, we feel like failures because when it comes to sharing the good news of Jesus, our definition is success and not faithfulness. Like we care about immediate outcomes, but God cares about long-term obedience and faithfulness. And one conversation with Jesus at the center of it can literally change the world. The point is we don't know always when we're in the conversation. We partner with God and place the outcome in his hands. God makes his appeal through us. It's how the good news has always spread. Then number four, the good news about Jesus is the best news we have ever heard. Paul writes this in verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This has been called like the great exchange or the glorious exchange. God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us. Jesus takes our place on the cross. Our sin is placed on Jesus. His righteousness is given to us. Our distance from God is placed on Jesus. His intimacy with God is given to us. Our punishment is placed on Jesus. His privilege is given to us. We're now sons and daughters of God through Christ, and we don't earn it. We don't achieve it. We just receive it by by grace. All of this is from God who made Jesus sin in our place. I can put it this way. 
The Bible says our sin leads to death, which sounds intense. But it's not because God is mean. It's cause and effect. Sin disconnects us from the living God and the life that is in him. It's like removing a plant from sunlight. Once it's disconnected from its source of life, it can slowly wither and die. Sin leads to death and decreation. Now, the Bible says Jesus never sinned. If Jesus sinned, he would need a savior and not be the savior. So the Bible says Jesus never sinned. He was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. So if sin leads to death and Jesus never sinned, why did Jesus die? The answer is he died for our sins in our place, bearing our judgment so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God and clothed in his right standing with the Father. And I would say it's better news than the news of a person dying of thirst in the desert. It's better news than the news of rescue to a person stranded on the seas. It's better news because the gospel has benefits in this life and the life to come. Jesus makes a difference in this life and the life to come. Jesus makes a difference now and forever. He impacts our current life and our forever life. He makes us new and he will make all things new and it's the best news we've ever heard. The love of Christ compels us. Jesus makes people new. God makes his appeal through us, and the gospel is the best news ever. But telling people about Jesus will never be cool. Doesn't matter how many times Bieber does it, or Chris Pratt, or Kanye, or Chan, I could just go on just naming celebrities. Chance the Rapper, Lyrics from Coldplay's latest album. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's not going to be cool. Uh, we love our neighborhood, and uh, we hang out with our neighbors a lot. Uh, we hang out intentionally, not by accident. You know, you walk out at the wrong time, and your neighbor's outside, and you make eye contact, and you're like, I got to talk. That's like neighboring by accident. Um, <laughs> we, we do it intentionally. And... Um, Last summer, one of our neighbors got a pool, and during the heat wave, if we all remember, it was hot, and uh, the adults would go in at 9 p.m., and they'd have a drink and a chat, and a few of you have heard me say this story, but my wife went to the pool, and one of our neighbors was saying, you know, how she got married in a church, and they did premarital counseling, and she said the counseling was surprisingly helpful, except the priest or whoever was doing their counseling kept telling them to come to God, right? Like, you need to come to God. And when she said that, everyone burst out laughing. Not my wife. Um, and they know we're church planning, which is, it was an awkward situation for her. But as if on a cue, everyone burst out laughing at the idea of coming to God. And our neighbors are so kind and open-minded and smart and successful. But in that moment, they all laughed at this idea of coming to God. And I'm sure you can easily imagine that happening at work or in a class or at a family dinner. But think about this. They laughed at the statement that has been a lifeline for so many people. Like all kinds of people, every ethnicity, every culture, every time period, 
Poor people, rich people, people with PhDs in every area of study, people who never finished high school, majorities, minorities, oppressed, oppressor, hopeless, helpless. The good news of Jesus hasn't just improved lives, it's literally saved countless lives. That's just a fact as true as any other fact in the world. And so it's like, how do, how do we justify that kind of you know, mocking, dismissive laughter that came so easily and without thought? How do we defend it? Well, to justify that type of like, dismissive laughter, we have to tell ourselves that on some level we're smarter or more enlightened or stronger or less needy than all those other people who found God to be a lifeline. Dawkins' book is filled with that tone. The problem is, not only is that statement untrue, it's also soul-corrupting because it breeds smugness and self-righteousness, and a secular, pharisaical attitude where you look down on everyone else who believes in God. Or, we don't justify the laughter. Instead, we feel convicted. We realize that we shouldn't laugh at the idea of coming to God. We, in a sense, repent of our laughter, which means we might have to start taking seriously the idea of coming to God. It becomes like an intriguing, soul-searching idea. Like, why would I laugh at something that's been a lifeline for so many people. And here's what's fascinating. In the last two months, Deandra, my wife, has had so many conversations about Jesus with these friends. She started praying for spiritual conversations and began having them multiple times a week. And so, for example, she'll be talking to a neighbor about, you know, estranged relationships between siblings and families. And she mentioned how her and her brother you know, used to be at odds. Her brother used to be so mean to her. They weren't close at all, and then something changed. And her neighbor was like, what? Like, what changed? And Deandra said, well, he went to a Christian camp, and his faith became real to him. And he came back. I get emotional because I think, what a difference, like, an older sibling investing in a younger sibling can make. He was 16. And this is how the gospel showed up in his life. He came back and he was nicer and, and attentive and kind and talked to her and took her to McDonald's when he got his license. Like following Jesus drastically changed her brother. And sharing this launched them into this long faith conversation with our neighbor. No laughter, only deep interest. Jesus makes a difference? She told our other neighbors, you're getting a picture that she's kind of the evangelist. I was probably having a nap when she's doing this. <clears throat> uh, she told our other neighbors about our son Caden getting baptized. And she told them Caden's testimony. He shared this publicly. But she told them Caden's testimony of struggling with anxiety attacks for a whole week. And someone in the church got a picture of him sitting on Jesus' lap. And Jesus had his hands around his mind, protecting his mind. And that picture gave our son so much peace. And our neighbors were very interested. No laughter, only intrigue. Jesus is relevant to, you know, estranged relationships and long-standing bitterness and anxiety and self-doubt and hopelessness. Yes, Jesus is relevant to it all. So I love Jesus. And I love people. And I want the people I love to meet the Jesus I love. 
The love of Christ compels us. God's love makes us new. God makes his appeal through us. And the gospel is the best news you've ever heard. And we want to be a people committed to telling others.